Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. We are recording. Yeah, we're recording and we're back again, yet again, for another session of 27 Speaks. We're going to stay away from politics this week, I think, because we got into that enough last week. Um, and we also have a special I guest. Missed- what was that? I missed it. Yeah, uh, you should listen to that one. Lots of Bob certainly won't want to talk politics. Yeah. Me neither, honestly. No. <laughs> yeah. Joking. I think Bob would love to talk politics. All right. So with that, um, with us this week's Brendan O'Reilly. Hey, Brendan. Hi, everybody. I'm Brendan. I'm the deputy managing editor of the Express News Group. And Joe Shaw's back in the house. Hey, Joe. Hey, Annette. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And uh, lovely Michelle Trowering is with us today as well. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Annette. I'm Michelle Trowering. I'm the features editor. And I'm Annette Hinkle, and I'm the Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. And also with us today is a special, special guest, and that's Bob DeLuca from Group for the East End. So what are you, the king the king of the Group for the East End? What's your official title over there? <laughs> in the uh, the old days of Chief Bottle Washer and uh, yeah. the guy with the broom. <laughs> <laughs> I am called the president, but uh, that just means you know, anything that goes wrong. I have to tell you, I just was remembering when I when I read Michelle's story about Ospreys, which is what we're talking about this week, Bob. Um, back in 1995, when I first moved out to the East End, um, I took a I took Carl Grossman's journalism class at um, Southampton College, and um, and I think he brought you in, and you were the subject of our stories. So, <laughs> Carl Grossman is the reason I live on Eastern Long Island. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he he uh, he did a class for uh, an environmental course I was taking up at the SUNY Forestry School. And uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, was working down on Long Island. And when I graduated, I was looking for someplace to, to apply for work. And literally, I just wrote up, wrote to Carl. And he's like, hey, why don't you check this group of the South Fork place? And uh, I've been kicking around here since 1985. Wow. So was it brand new at that time? So the group actually was founded in 1972. Wow. And, uh, so it was, you know, it was uh, well on its way, but uh, they, it just so happened they were looking for somebody. Wow. And you never left. Look at that. Actually, I left for a little while. I I, I had a, a hand trying uh, the government route and then I uh, I quickly resorted back to where I am. <laughs> the cover's up. We have a, we should have a game here. Um, six degrees of Carl Grossman, because yeah. I'm pretty sure, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he has a direct connection to just about everything that we do so well the, well the weirdest one was joe i don't know if you remember a few a few months ago i did a story with yorma kalkinen who was um with hot tuna and um jefferson airplane and after i wrote the story carl grossman wrote me he's like you know yorma and i went to college together in ohio and we used to ride motorcycles together can you put me back in touch with them i'm like what amazing <laughs> so yeah it's strange it's strange there you go so so the story we're going to talk about today is one that Michelle wrote. And Michelle, I don't know if you want to jump in and talk about, put, give us the setup. But it's basically a, a really nice, good story about the rebound of the Osprey population, which um, had been largely decimated by DDT. Yeah, you know, something that Bob said toward the end of our conversation actually was that so many of these stories that are in the environmental world are kind of bummers. 
it's just, it's constantly a downer and it's this fight and this fight and this fight, and it feels like you're never going to win. And then you do. And I think that the Osprey are really indicative of this. Um, so Bob, if you want to take it from there, what are you seeing at Group of East End with the Osprey populations? Well, I think, and uh, I should note the press's editorial this week too, which focuses in that same area, which is, you know, when you enter any environmental arena, for the vast majority of people, it usually is over some negative consequence. Something's happening, people rise up, they, they get aware of it. The more they get aware of it, the scarier it seems, you know. And when you're in this for a while, you realize that actually there can be good outcomes. I mean, there has to be eternal vigilance, there has to be staying power. And the Osprey, you know, for many reasons that as we talked about, is, is, is iconic of the region. I mean, it's just one of those symbols of the region. And I think the example I gave when we were chatting is that the Peconic Estuary Program, when it was looking for its logo years and years ago, the, the two things that kept coming up were the scallop and the osprey. And that's actually kind of interesting to our discussion today, because on the one hand, the osprey's recovery has been magnificent, and it really is a, a great testimony to how resilient nature is and how it can come back if you give it a chance. And then, of course, we're seeing what's happening with scallops, where we, we, we have this sort of like back and forth with investing in that population of, of scallops and, and, and having it become economically viable again, but it just can't get, you know, to a self-sustaining population. And then you have these other things happening, temperature and parasites and things. So, you know, there's always a lot of give and take, but I think the Osprey story is one that people should feel good about. It is an aspir you know, in the environment, you usually have aspiration and desperation, right? I mean, a lot of times we find ourselves on the desperational side, but the aspiration of what can happen if you stay with something, you know, those Ospreys, we know, you know, going back to the early nineties, you're talking about probably, I don't know, 500 birds on Long Island, 700 birds all across Long Island. Out here, maybe at 100 birds, something like that. And, you know, now we know that you've got, you know, we're seeing 500 fledglings a year kind of on, an, on a regular basis. And we know that there's more than that. We're not getting every nest. I mean, we are looking in all five towns, but we know we're missing something. So, you know, that bird has come back and people have actually helped, which is another story you don't hear about so often is that, you know, we sort of, you do this long enough, you start feeling that we're always the bad guy, you know? And a lot of times that's true. But on the human, other hand, human beings, you mean, are always the bad guys. Yes, yes. Humans are always seem to be at the, at the root cause of a lot of this stuff. But I also remember a funny story back when I was in grad school about the wood duck, which, you know, if you're into such things, you know, wood ducks were almost taken off uh, the map as well because people took down all the dead wood around wetlands and there was overhunting and so forth. Simply putting wood duck boxes back where they belong, not unlike the osprey platforms, brought that bird back to becoming a very uh, productive game bird across the Northeast and other areas. And again, people actually helped to do it. So I, I really like that aspect of the story. And I feel like with young people, uh, we have to have some good news out there. I mean, I see with my kids, you know, the prospect of climate change and, and the collective insults to the planet, they're bombarded 24 seven, you know, with, with imagery that, that can just beat the life out of you. So anytime we have a good story to tell, we all ought to tell it, uh, particularly if you're in my business, because uh, I think it does the heart good and it does keep people involved. We should probably talk about how the uh, osprey population was decimated and, and why that happened. And it was human interaction, right? I mean, it, it was it was a combination of things, but almost all of it being uh, the result of, of human behavior. Yeah, I, I think the most consequential things, and, and some of us, you know, follow this more than others, but, you know, when DDT was the prevalent organophosphate persistent pesticide used for mosquitoes. It was like a miracle pesticide. So 
again, it had this great value in reducing malaria and yellow fever and things like this. But as with many things, you know, the broadcasting of that pesticide all over marshes and places had this food chain effect where the, the fish were, you know, the pesticides were getting into the fish, the fish were getting into the osprey, the osprey further up the food chain, essentially aggregate that toxin and magnify its impact. And in, in the case of those birds, it was weakening the shells so that when they nested, you know, that, that the eggs would break and you wouldn't have productive nesting. And that alongside, you know, if you also take a look at the trajectory of, of, of development, you know, you look at Long Island, 55% or probably more of Long Island's wetlands were, were just eliminated. So out here on the East End, we, we have almost a, a picture back in history because you can still find a wetland. But in many cases, um, that's that, that wasn't the case. And so we lost habitat. We lost um, from the impact of the pesticide itself. And then over time, there were fishing issues related to, um, you know, the, the, the overfishing of bunker and things like that. So they had kind of a triple whammy. So I just shared my screen here. Can everybody see it? Yeah. So I don't know if you've seen this. Maybe Bob has since he's paid some attention to DDT. Uh, this is a photo of a model named Kay Heffernan. And it's 1948. And she's actually at Jones Beach. And she's sipping on a Coca-Cola out of a glass bottle with a straw. And she's holding a hot dog. She is standing in a cloud of DDT. This was mm -hmm. just to demonstrate how safe uh, DDT was. And I, I've seen those photos too, Bob, I believe, of uh, the the trucks spraying and kids playing, right? I mean, and I've, I've, I think I've seen that before where, where, you know, they would run alongside the truck and they would, they would spray into, you know, the, these clouds of DDT. Yeah, and, and that's still not uncommon in other places. I spent I was in Egypt at one point and every day the trucks would go by along the railroad station and just fog anything that could be fogged. And so that also became a a common practice, right? So then that became something, you know, to, you have to undo every mess you make. And that's where the work is, right? It's kind of easy to muck things up. Right. But then reeling back from the edge of every policy decision, every funding decision, every collective bad idea. Tremendous amount of work. So, you know, DDT really got a, it's, it's a scent, you know, in the late 40s and 50s, 60s, late, you know, by the mid 60s, Rachel Carson and other people started ringing the alarm about what these persistent pesticides would do. And then you had to go back and, and, and sort it out and try to figure out ways to eliminate the worst of these things, um, which, you know, in DDT's case, it was taken off the market here, but then, of course, sold abroad. Uh, it's it's always a long road home. Yeah, well, that's one of my questions, Bob, because the ospreys that are here in the summer go to South America in the winter, and as I as I understand it, they're still using DDT in parts of South America. Is that true? And is that a concern? Um, and how does that affect the the population here? Do we think? So, uh, not really expert on this, but my understanding is the same: is that it still is used in certain areas, not as much as it was. You know, the benefit that we have is that the egg laying goes on here and the, the, the feeding ahead of the egg laying goes on up here. So maybe they're not eating that much down there and they are avoiding And that a lot of their, yeah, a lot of their life cycle is is through, you know, if you followed, in fact, there was this one osprey that was tracked around here. I forget, I forget his name was Bob, actually. The <laughs> and um, 
you could you could follow him all the way down to Venezuela. There was like a map that you could follow, and he would go to and he was going to this fairly uh, isolated lake. But it does seem that that you know the relationship between the proximity to breeding time and and how much you know fish they were ingesting. Um, we got the we got a larger benefit for those birds uh, being in areas. With so they don't down. when they're in South America, then they don't lay eggs down there. Like they don't have two nesting periods. Now, their breeding cycle is up here. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Well, that's a good thing. Are we seeing osprey return across the country? Like, does the West Coast have osprey populations, and and is it this similar rebound that we've had here in the Northeast? So osprey are one of the few species. I think there's maybe eleven or less that actually are, are across the globe. So the ospreys that you find in on the European continent you'll find here same same animal uh so there are populations across across the country in central and western uh, western areas and so they are the same and and their their ascent has become it's pretty much across the board right so they many cases suffered from the same kinds of issues uh maybe you know slightly different amount of pesticide to, to habitat destruction i don't know what those numbers look like comparatively to ours i haven't i haven't seen that research but we do know that the that the population has has come back strongly, and that's a good sign, you know, not just for us, but of course for the species in general. Because, like I say, it's it's across the globe. This week. Mm. So, does the return of the bunker has that had a big impact on the amount of uh, birds that we're seeing return? I mean, we're fairly confident that it has, mm. and um, I don't, I have not seen, you know, what you'd consider sort of a peer reviewed journal analysis of this, but there seems to be sufficient anecdotal evidence over time to tell you that you look at the the big jumps the availability of food is is huge here and and then the return of bunker um and you can just if you watch these birds fishing you know uh and you know it's interesting too we should talk a little bit about this like the recovery of the osprey exists in parallel track to the troubles we have in our surface waters right so while the osprey has found a way and with a little bit of human help and then its own population rebounding and the elimination of those pesticides it's still working in waters that have their own their own challenges. So the bunker just in its large numbers is able to kind of overcome the limitations in the water column from other things, whether it's uh, murky water, whether it's algal blooms, low oxygen or what have you. And so these, these systems are not, it's like a chess game, right? You move a couple of pieces around each time and some things move forward, some things move back. The trick is to try to obviously get as many indicators going in the right direction. The osprey is one, and it's important for these animals at the top of the food chain to do well, because it usually does tell you something about what's happening lower down. But they also exist in parallel to other real problems like we have in our surface waters. Flip side of that, though, too, Bob, is, I, correct me if I'm wrong, there were steps taken to, to address the bunker population. So this is one of the side benefits to doing that, is that it also because of the food chain, it bolsters the, the osprey population. Right. So the bunker uh, regs were, were changed. Mm -hmm. you, you couldn't take as many across sort of these mid-Atlantic fishery, these councils that are set up to try to figure out who can take which fish. Um, the numbers have come up significantly. Now, interestingly, you may end up having a few more fish kills because now you have more bunker, more bunker going into areas where there's lower oxygen. You may end up with more fish kills, but overall, you've got more bunker, which is good for the osprey, right? Right. So, you know, again, it's there is there's kind of a synergy there. If you can help different populations, you get a you get a residual effect on other populations as well. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin and Cordoraro. 
in these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles. Very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. So do you think that there's any connection between more bunker and a depletion of oxygen that could be affecting the scallops? No, I think what, you know, overall, that's, I mean, what you have with like fish kills is typically you have, you have isolated areas, inlets, areas that may tend toward higher temperatures, lower oxygen content in general. And then you shove uh, 20,000 fish in there. And whatever mm-hmm. oxygen is left in the water column is quickly consumed and they essentially suffocate. And that's that. Uh, you know, basin wide, that's not so much of a problem for them. And the bunker can do better. Obviously, they do better like everything else if they've got enough oxygen and so forth. But I think it's more of an isolated case with the fish kills. And if you take a look at where some of the more memorable ones have been, right, in the western reaches of the bay, in the Flanders area up in Riverhead, that those areas tend to be low in oxygen to begin with. They're shallow, they're warm. Those things naturally, even without us making a bigger mess out of it, um, have their challenges. If you send a million fish up there, sometimes there's a chance you're going to end up with a fish kill. And that's also a natural process to some extent. It can be aggravated. Um, but I think, the, the, again, the trick is, you know, it's like, it's like just so many different moving parts, right? You try to get all of the parts moving in the same direction. And the challenge for, you know, uh, natural resource managers is how do you where do you keep, what ball do you keep your eye on, right? So the Osprey are doing great. Can we declare victory and go home? No, because now we have another problem, which is scallops. Okay, what's going on with the scallops? It's a, it's a big job. But, but like I say, progress on any front, I think is, from my standpoint, is progress on all fronts because it tells you that mm-hmm. things can get better. And from a policy standpoint, when we slip into that area, that's critical to getting elected officials to believe that they can make positive change as well, not throw their hands up. And you had mentioned, Bob, that we did an editorial this week, and I have to throw some credit back to you because I think it was sort of the last line of the article that Michelle wrote with you, I think planted the seed that we we sort of expanded on a little bit in the editorial, which is something you talked about at the beginning of your comments, which is, you know, and, and Michelle, I think you mentioned it too, that sometimes it seems like we create all these problems as human beings in the environment around us, we do so much damage. And sometimes it starts to seem hopeless, like, geez, we've done all this damage, what are we gonna do? But there are really important examples, and this is the, the Osprey population is one, but it's certainly not the only one, that human beings can, can change things for the better and address these kind of problems that we've created over time as well. And we've, we did it with the Osprey, we're seeing the, the benefits of that. We've done it with the ozone layer is the other example that we focused on in, in the editorial. There are real examples of, you know, it takes time, just like it took time to do the damage. It takes time right. to, to reverse things. But when we look now at the, the water, the, the surface waters and the conditions with the surface waters and the impacts that we're seeing from that, it kind of feels hopeless in that same way that we've done the damage. But 
there's a lesson to learn here, right, Bob? That, that it, it's not, we shouldn't throw in the towel. Well, and, and, a, and a couple of things. One is that local news media is brave enough to carry positive news, uh, I think is a tribute to, to local news media because it doesn't have to just be a, cat- a catastrophe of a neg- in a negative way. That's, that's huge. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are these positive stories and they, sh- and they, and they tell us that we can make change. You know, look, and, and with respect to water quality, I mean, Chesapeake Bay is another place that people had written off. You know, there's, it's, it's an ongoing process, but positive steps have been taken. Change comes about. Some places in Connecticut where the, you know, the, the Connecticut shoreline where you've seen by n- pulling nitrogen out, you can get better water quality results. So it does happen. And it doesn't, and the other, you know, we, we live in such a, uh, a, re- a results driven world or an immediate gratification that somebody's like, well, yesterday I, you know, I put in this septic system and how come the base still has problems? Well, that's because it took us, you know, it's, I, it took us a long time to make the mess and it'll take some time to, to clean it up. But I want to just focus on this other point about, about people giving up because in, in my opinion, looking at land use for almost 40 years now, we run into these cycles where even decision makers on land use matters kind of shrug when you talk about these issues, right? You talk about saving forested lands, you talk about groundwater impacts, and they kind of have heard it for a long time. And they're like, yeah, but, you know, or whatever. We got some decent zoning out here, so that ought to take care of stuff. And 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 I can't emphasize enough how important it is for that not to become the standard operating procedure, because if you do not stay with it, it's like anything else. You want to run a marathon. It's great to buy the sneakers, but you don't get up and run every day. You're not running that marathon. And I feel like boards are overwhelmed with the amount of stuff that comes to them. I feel personally like we have a problem in some of the consulting world where consultants kind of tell everybody that everything's going to be fine. Uh, the example that I like to give is every traffic consultant says there's never going to be a traffic problem, yet here we are. Um, that skepticism needs to be there, and you can't just go, well, what are you going to do? Uh, if that had been the approach to ozone, ospreys, uh, wood ducks, you pick. Um, and I think same with scallops. I mean, the, the work that's been done on scallops since 1985 and the first brown tide uh, has been extraordinary. Now, some people will say like, well, we tried, you know, it hasn't quite there yet, so let's move. But, you know, so much has been learned. We actually have created a viable commercial scallop industry on and off throughout that entire time. The public investment is paying dividends, and I think, you know, that's what you have to stay with. Hi, this is Ellen Diogardi. I'm the director of events for the Express News Group. I'm also the president of the Sag Harbor Chamber of Commerce. Community really matters to all of us at this company. I know it's a good part of why I'm here. We've hosted more than 50 of our Express Sessions events in Southampton, East Hampton, and Sag Harbor, focusing on issues that matter most to residents of the East End. We bring the most important government and community leaders and topic experts together in one room, and we often find answers to complicated questions, and we grow stronger together. This all takes staff time and company resources, but it's our job, and I'm happy to say we really love our work. But we can't do it without our subscribers. If this kind of community work is important to you, you can support it by becoming a subscriber. To subscribe, visit 27east.com slash subscribe, and thank you. I'll say one thing. The Osprey situation, we can call it something to celebrate, but there's an imperative implied in there, too. I mean, it shows that you've you've got to take action to get things done. So, you know, yeah, it's great that we accomplished that with the Osprey, but it points the finger back at us and says there's no excuse for these other problems going unaddressed. 
And you got to hold the ground that you gain, right? Even with ospreys. Now, one of the things that we're getting now is now people are calling up saying, you know, this bird is on my chimney. This bird is on my boat. You, know, <laughs> you guys with ospreys. I can't get rid of ospreys. So we're actually realigning kind of what we're doing, trying to get more information into the hands of people about how do you dissuade these birds from dangerous areas? How do we avoid conflicts? Because we don't need that. We don't want people to think that these birds are a nuisance now. And that can be a problem uh, for sustaining these populations over time. I've tried birdhouses and owl houses at my house to no effect. They remain unoccupied. I imagine putting an osprey pole on your property is a little bit harder. What, what are the base requirements for somebody to have an osprey pole that's going to actually get nested on if they want to be a contributor to sustaining the osprey population? So a couple of things. I guess the first thing we've been saying to people is we're trying to get these birds to move back to more natural natural nesting areas where we can, right? So in the early days, you needed those platforms to give the birds a, a sort of an, un, an unnatural advantage, right? So there's not as much need as there was. However, as we have more and more birds and they get into more and more mischief, um, poles can actually serve as a bit of a, of, a, of a mediating effect on that. Normally, what you have to have is you have to have, you know, essentially a visual of, of water, not always, but many times the bird wants to be on the nest and be able to see water. And I can tell you that immediately somebody will say, yeah, but I saw one at the King Cullen in Peconic and there's no water for two miles. But when you think about how high that particular nest is on the radio tower, it probably can see water. The other one I think about is when you're coming across the Shinnecock Canal and on um, Sunrise Highway, there's always some up in those towers there. You can probably see the water from there. Uh, you can't have a closed canopy over the top. The birds don't like that very much. Um, they're pretty sensitive to um, if there's a lot of predators around, whether it's cats or dogs or raccoons. They're wary of that. They, I mean, they'll harass the animals and try to get them out of there. But they also, in terms of setting up, you kind of look at that. But but normally it's 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 a visual perspective on water. Um, it's the lack of a canopy over the top of the platform. You know, we provided and can provide people with. Um, plans to make your own uh, your nest platform. We've had some local schools, the shop classes, like on Shelter Island, they made the platforms and they put some up there. And I think you probably would be, you know, normally you're looking at, you know, 15 feet, 12 to 15 feet high, something like that, depending on, again, what your vantage point is. Now, I also say that, and I can tell you that some of these birds will nest on the ground on Gardner's Island because there's not a lot of predators there. I had one in East Marion last year where they had this little it was a, it was a, it was a dock and it had a platform for cleaning fish and the, they nested on that. And that was like four feet off, off the platform. I have, I have no explanation for that, but, but it, they nested there and I think they got young. So it's, you know, it's a little, a little speculative. The other thing that we're trying to do is also get them off of these electrical poles because we're having problems where they're ending up getting electrocuted and PSIG, I will tell you, and I know people run hot and cold on PSIG, but uh, they have been very good in working with us to not only help us, uh, get the information to their crews about where the birds are and how we can put up. You may see some of these V guards that are out there now, these sort of triangular um, mounts that go on top of the poles, which make it harder for the birds to nest, but that's saving a lot of birds lives. And it's also saving them in terms of, you know, outages and things like that. So we've been, we've had a good relationship with them and they've been very good on this issue. I always think it's hilarious when you like, I'll go back uh, hiking in Barcelona neck and there's this beautiful osprey platform overlooking the bay, nothing around and there's no nest on it. And then you go by a really busy intersection and there they are. They're hanging out, hanging out with the traffic. I have people sending me pictures like that going, you know, this thing is like nesting on my chimney. 
<laughs> out my front window. I can see the nicest platform and there's nobody on it. I actually think yeah. that's one of the great things about the Osprey population is they are so visible and, and you can see the impacts that you're having. Um, I think of that poll up um, in Riverside, uh, right at the big intersection up there. Um, when I have friends who come from elsewhere and we go up there, it's like, oh my God, look at that. There's, there's almost always a couple of Osprey on the poll and it's a topic of conversation. It's really cool to, to, you know, sometimes with wildlife, you know, it's happening, you know, it's a good thing. It's happening, but it's outside your, your, your view. You know, we can see the Osprey all around us. And I think that's, that's a really cool thing. A good example of that maybe is the return of otters, right? I mean, you know, everybody loves otters. And we know that they're returning. You know, Mike Bettini has been doing a lot of work out here. They're great uh, wildlife biologist doing that work. And we know they're around, but it's not always that easy to find. Them. So ospreys, they make it pretty easy. You could find them anywhere. It's funny. And, and then I find out that there are like constituencies around particular osprey poles. And I, a couple of years ago, this is, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but where Hashahomic Pond drains into the bay uh, near Brick Cove Marina up there uh, is a piece of property that had a pole for many, many years. And it got flooded and went down in a storm. And I literally had people, like a dozen people, calling. They wanted to pay for it. And I actually, I got DEC, thankfully. It's on DEC property. And they sent people out there and they put one up and they did a great job and the birds are back. But various poles have their own little neighborhood constituencies that watch them. And sometimes, you know, will convey data to us too if we miss something or if they see more chicks than they think, you know, we're seeing. But that's good. They get names too. So do, the, do those osprey return um, year after year to the same platform? They come back kind of to the same area where they were, where they were born. Um, they're not always, you know, there's competition for platforms. So they kind of work it out amongst themselves as to who's going to get the prime real estate. That sounds they do familiar. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. We can cover that in another story. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so there's competition for real estate. Uh, I'm not exactly sure who wins the battle, but and I assume the older, more mature, experienced birds usually win out. You you will see, and I guess we should notice this too. Um, sometimes you will see younger birds messing around. We call it playing house. They'll bring a stick and they'll shove it in something, or they'll stand up on top of a tree. They don't all breed, but they're here. It takes them a while to kind of figure out what they're doing to mature. I think usually two, three years. Uh, but then eventually, you know, they'll succeed. So a lot of the birds that you may see birds that are not breeding birds around, or you may see like four or five birds just kind of hanging out, well, adult birds, and they may be siblings from a prior nest or whatever. But they do at least come back kind of to the same neighborhood. Huh. Now I got to ask too, Bob, what about the interaction between osprey and the bald eagle population that's that's returning as well? So I, so I just got a picture yesterday of a, of a two bald eagles sitting in an osprey nest outside of Orion. And I've seen those, those birds there as well. Uh, they're, they're, they compete with each other. So in one of my prior uh, lives, I did some work on uh, lobstering boats out of, Nova, out of uh, Nova Scotia. And I did interpretive tours for people. And we used to see the bald eagles are quite plentiful in this particular area, as are the osprey. And they would go at it all day long. So normally, so the eagle is bigger and tougher and on a one-on-one, -on -one, the osprey loses. The osprey is also more like a fighter jet, which you can outmaneuver the uh, the eagles. Eagles are more scavengers than hunters. So the eagles will spend a tremendous amount of time trying to steal the fish from the osprey. And I have to tell you that my my Canadian counterparts on the fishing boat said, of course, your, your, your bird, the American eagle, wants to steal our fish. I'm like, All right. 
Um, but anyway, but it's something to watch now. And, and on occasion, it's been documented that adult eagles will take osprey chicks and eat them. So they are bigger and tougher, but there's also, they, there are less of them. Mm-hmm. And the ospreys kind of make up in agility what they lack in, in size. And so I think what we're going to see here is, as this plays out is the eagle population will come up, but it'll come up to significantly lower numbers than we see in ospreys. There'll probably be some conflict and interactions between them, which you're most likely to see if the eagle population gets high enough, because I know I've seen it myself, is them chasing and trying to get ospreys to drop fish. Uh, they want to eat for free. And the ospreys are great. You know, they, their success rate. I mean, eagles can fish, but they're nowhere near as uh, expert at it as in my yeah. experience yeah. as ospreys are. So why not try to get it for free? Yeah. Like in Alaska, the eagles are always just hanging around the garbage dump. They're lazy. <laughs> yeah. First first bald eagle I ever saw in my life was sitting on a, a Texaco sign at a gas station in Nova Scotia. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I was like staring at it. The guy goes, I know it's there every day. I wish this thing would get out of here. <laughs> so uh yeah so that will be interesting to see like i, I i'm i've been watching this this one in particular because it's kind of near my house and i want to see if when the osprey come back whether they're going to start you know battling over this particular spot i don't know that it's a it's the best spot for eagle nesting and they have some different criteria as well but they're back and they're you know plum island we know we have them we have them in sears bellows i guess we have them in east hampton mm-hmm. and uh Mishomik. so they're they're around and then uh, and the osprey actually come back almost like clockwork work on the first of spring, right? Yeah, we get them, you know, we start uh, looking around beginning of March and they do start coming back right in the middle, in the beginning of March. And so we, in fact, next month, we have people in the field uh, trying to get another round of looking at the poles that are high hazard poles. We have several tiers of these poles that are hazardous for nesting, the, the electrified poles and working with PSIG to kind of, they were, they put up, I don't know, dozens of these of these v guards so that's kind of our priority for this year coming up alongside you know giving people more information about how they can uh, reduce conflict bob i wanted to ask you as part of michelle's story uh we ran uh, a map that that you guys put together of all of the uh nesting sites on the east end and i think it's a pretty stunning map to to see that number and to see you know i, I think it's a great thing to see how they're you know, spread out so well. Is there, I'm curious about whether there's a critical mass. I mean, do you continue to put up osprey poles or do you reach a point where you can kind of start just maintaining where, I mean, I assume there is a point where the population is at a healthy level and we don't have to keep trying to add more and more osprey to it. Are we anywhere near that point? Do we know? Uh, yes. We're not actively putting up osprey towers anymore. We are helping to maintain those that exist, working with people who have them. If people want, for example, a school we were contacted by wants for educational purposes to get a nest cam up and that kind of thing, or, or helping to facilitate that, we're trying to get the birds to kind of go back to where they used to be. We do know that the addition of some more poles is not a bad thing only because of the mitigation that's necessary to offset this rise in population. But overall, from a management standpoint, the, the birds out here are in, are in very good shape. And until that changes, we're, we're more concerned about the electrocution issues because of the number of birds. And we're concerned about people beginning to feel that the birds are a nuisance or a problem 
And we're trying to counter that with education information, how to get, how to help people not have ospreys nesting on their chimney. So you're not out there putting up those nests like you were back in the mid nineties when I first met you. Thank God. <laughs> because I would also need to be dialing 911. <laughs> uh, you know, we need some younger backs around yeah. here. I'm afraid. But we, we, you know, we've, we've helped with some, but we really decided that it, that the other part of this equation, which is making sure that people understand what's happening and that we're trying to recognize that the birds can start like there's a couple of places where I, where the birds are nesting in trees and it's a weird thing if you've never seen that and i've had people call me concerned what? that the birds are like being forced to nest in the trees and i'm like you know that's kind of where they used to be <laughs> or people started putting up osprey plants. imagine that a bird in a tree wow no. yeah you know people don't know and, and you don't think about it but it's it, it that's where they yeah. used to go and so that's happening but it's got to be a real point of pride for for you and for everybody involved, I mean, to, to be able to look at it and go, wow, we can now start to feel really good about um, how this has had an impact over the last 20 years. You know, look, I mean, my staff will tell you that there are, that there are days when I feel like we're circling the drain and I'm extremely pleased when we, when we see these kinds of results and we see people enjoying, you know, most of us that work in this field had an experience as a child or sometime in their life in nature. I mean, I was fortunate as a kid. I grew up with about a thousand acres of uh, wooded wetland swamp behind the house that I lived in. And I spent my whole childhood there just roaming around. I, you know, I'll never forget that. Like that really shaped me. But if you don't have that experience, the experience of seeing these birds or understanding how they connect with, I mean, just knowing that they go out there and they have to fish to survive. It's really important. And I think those kinds of experiences help drive you know not people who do it every day like me but just the average person to feel connected to the environment to to the awe that you have you know you watch this stuff on a documentary you know, on public television you're like oh my god look at that thing you can go right outside here you can go right down to the creek and watch this going on and it's amazing and if you just spend a little bit of time and turn off all the electronics and just just stop and watch your life gets better in in, in in a million ways. And, you know, it's also the next time there's an issue, you might take the time to go to town hall and talk about it. And we need that too. So it's all good. And I think, you know, as a point, the only, the only point of pride I guess I have is that uh, there were tons of people who volunteered to help with all of this and, and to be part of that has always been a great thing. And that we know the numbers now that we actually have spent the time and we can, we can document that, that this is actually happening and in big numbers. So yeah, I mean, it's great. After this podcast is over, put on your hiking boots and go out, take a look, see what you find. I just came, I just came back from a, an Osprey pole site what, before I got on the, on the call here. Somebody, one is down out in the, the county. For the, uh, an Osprey watcher's job is never done. Yeah, but you know, there's worse ways to make a living. So. Yeah, it really is. That's true. Good point. I love the uh, the idea that there's like an air superiority battle taking place over our skies with the eagles and the what are we talking about? Ospreys. Yeah. I think. Are we talking about football here? I'm not sure. <laughs> That's a different. It's a different one. Yeah. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. 
Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.